Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, now we have the privilege of hearing what blessings we have been given. Undeserved. And even for those of us who have been walking with you for a long time, often disbelieved because it seems to be too good to be true. Give us faith. Open the eyes of our heart. Help us see you and believe you and love you and trust you and act as members of your family because of the great guarantees you have made to us at your own cost. In Christ's name I pray. Because of some training and education I've, I've received, I've, maybe you've had the same experience, even if you don't know quite how to process it. I've felt through this time, I've recognized myself in the very early, super shallow stages of shock. And one of the first signs is that you disbelieve what is happening. When I drove here this morning and made every light saw no other cars, saw one other person slowly walking down the street. It's, it's impossible to get used to. It doesn't seem real. That's why so many of you, and I hope you'll stop if that's become your habit, are scouring social media and scouring the news every moment of every day, hoping that someone will tell you that a return to normalcy will come tomorrow. Honestly, things that we thought we could count upon have been shaken. Some have been removed altogether. The very concept of a guarantee has been exposed. For instance, and I thought I was super smart for doing so, several months ago, I set up on Amazon subscriptions to pretty much every basic thing that our household needs that we will always need as long as we live. So when the stores started going crazy and 1,500 people started lining up outside of Walmart, I smiled internally to myself and thought to myself, I won't need to do any of that. I have a subscription. And all of the things that people are so concerned about because of my amazing foresight, wisdom, and intelligence, all of that will be delivered to my doorstep. Well, you already know how that ended. Not one important thing that I had subscribed to arrived. It's all gone. And once again, I learned that I'm not nearly half as smart. I can't foresee really one minute ahead. And we're in desperate search for guarantees. And today, I want to give you a reminder from a well-known passage of something that has been promised to you, and it was promised precisely during this week that traditionally has been called Holy Week. It had been promised much earlier. It was purchased at the cross of Christ. You see, today is Palm Sunday, and as I mentioned earlier, if you joined us on time, voices singing praises from the book of Zechariah greeted Jesus. They took promises that were made in the Hebrew Scriptures and applied them to Him, and voices from the crowd called out, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They weren't really paying attention to actually what Jesus Himself had been telling them was going to happen. He wasn't coming on a white charger as a conqueror. 
He was in the humble posture of a servant. And sure enough, soon enough, a different crowd formed. And they didn't cry out from Scripture anymore. They didn't greet Jesus with praise. They greeted Him with accusations and lies. They greeted with a demand made of imperial Rome that put a coward named Pontius Pilate in a difficult place. They demanded at the top of their lungs, crucify Him. And so they did. That's what we will remember on Good Friday. They took the creator of everything that exists. They took the king of glory who had been faithful and loving to every person he had ever met. They nailed him on a Roman cross and made him die the death of a scoundrel. Rome carried out capital punishment with the world's entire agreement. They scoffed at him and mocked him, spit on him, tore at him even as he died. And years later, someone who rejoiced in that death, who thought an imposter had been put to death, named Paul, was perhaps literally knocked off his high horse. And the greatest skeptic of Jesus and the greatest skeptic of the Christian faith became its most ardent preacher and its most sacrificial believer. You know him as the Apostle Paul. And he wrote in the book of Romans, if you have your Bible or your smartphone, please open it with me to the very well-known and beloved passage of Romans 8. I want to remind you and tell you of the things that God guaranteed for you through the death and the resurrection of His Son. This is what God's love guarantees. I'll begin reading at the end of, verse, at the end of the chapter. I'm in Romans 8, verse 31. Romans 8.31, I'll give you just a moment to get there. It'll be so much more meaningful if you can have the Scripture open in front of you as I try to explain it to you. Romans 8, verse 31. Paul has been explaining to the churches of Rome everything that Christ had done for them. In verse 1, he said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And through the length of this very dense and beautiful chapter, Paul lays out everything that changed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, everything that changed for the Romans at the moment they trusted Him. So he asked this question, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, if God has done all of this for us, if He has made it so that there is no longer any condemnation for it, how do we respond what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We'll stop there. Here are some of the guarantees that the death and resurrection of Jesus makes to you. And this operates, Paul teaches us this, through the use of rhetorical questions. And I've explained this to you before. If you're part of our church family, you're familiar with this 
literary device. And even if you're not, even if you didn't pay attention when your English teacher was painstakingly trying to tell you what a rhetorical question was, I guarantee you, you've used it. If you've grown up, if you're more than seven or eight years of age, you've used it. And if you're grown up, you've certainly had it used against you by your parents. Parents use rhetorical questions all the time. They say things like, what's wrong with you? What are you thinking? Those are rhetorical questions. These are much better. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the obvious answer is, no one. If God is for us, literally, if God is on our side, who can stand against us? Well, listen, we can be opposed, and we often are. Sometimes people are opposed for their faith, but if God is on someone's side, that opposition is eternally irrelevant. It's meaningless. The good news of the gospel, and this is what seems too good to be true, is that eternally because of what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus did by taking his life back from the grave and death as promised, God is for us. He is for us. And many people selfishly living without any regard for God assume that that's true. The good news of the gospel tells a sharper, cleaner, clearer story. It tells us that we were once enemies of God, that we were hostile to Him, that we lived indifferently and in opposition to Him, that we, because we loved ourselves and we loved the world, we constituted ourselves as people who were opposed to God, who were enemies of God, that we were alienated from God, that our relationship with God was broken. That's why the Bible, right here in the book of Romans, uses terms like reconciliation to describe what Jesus was doing on the cross. What Jesus was securing was peace with God, no condemnation from God, the fatherhood of God, and the friendship of God. All of these terms that those of you who have read your Bibles carefully know are scattered throughout the Scripture to describe how rich and how good and how loving God is in relationship with you. This is the good news of the gospel, that God is for us. And in verse 32 through the rest, Paul begins to detail what it means if God has placed Himself on your side. And to be perfectly clear, God couldn't be on your side so long as you were opposed to Him. So long as people live as if God does not exist, as if His will, His character matter the least, so long as people act as if they are the Lord of their own life, you're the boss of your own destiny, and take no account and have no love and trust in the God who made you, God can't be for you. But the relationship purchased at the cross of Christ when you put your trust in Jesus changes absolutely everything. And because of that, there is now no condemnation for you. And then from verses 32 through 39, what Paul is going to do is explain in detail, and I just see three simple things in these verses, what it means for God to be for you. It begins in verse 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What does it mean that God is for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? It's another rhetorical question. Let me rephrase it. If God was willing to sacrifice His own Son to bring you into His family, how could you ever believe that God will not, along with that gift, give you everything else you need? This is the first guarantee made through the love of God. This is what it means that God is for us. It means that God will provide that God will provide, that the God who gave His own Son, who did not spare His own Son, but sent His willing Son into a dark, brutal world, who lied against Him, who betrayed Him, who accused Him falsely, who treated Him as a criminal, and Jesus endured all of that knowingly. He is probably the only condemned man in the history of the human race to willingly walk to meet His executioners. You can read that the Gospel of John. Jesus willingly went, willingly went to greet the men he knew were there to arrest him, subject him to a mockery, a trial, and kill him. God sent his son into the world to do just that, and Jesus is no victim. He is determined to go to the cross. He is a gift willingly given by the Father and given by Himself. And Paul says, if God has done all that, how will He not also with Jesus graciously give us everything else? God will provide. And perhaps on a very practical note, that's the first thing you need to hear. As your world, your economy, your job, your business, your family has been shaken the Father who did not spare His own Son will provide for you. The cross of Jesus tells you how generous God is, that God does not spare even the life of His own Son. Certainly along with Jesus, He will also give you everything else. I won't name them because they're just not that kind of people. They're not a look-at-me family, but many of you know a family in our church with three grown children who, over the course of years, adopted three more children. The little children are very different from the children that were born into that family. They come from very different circumstances. They come from a world of need and a world of trauma in some cases, and in the case of a couple of those children, that is unimaginable. And we've been a witness to how that family has become from a, a family with three children, a family of six. And right here in the gospel of, uh, rather in the book of Romans, we are told that we are adopted as God's own children. And anytime I see this wonderful family and their dear friends, I think of what a beautiful earthly picture it is. It's imperfect. It's pale by comparison, but it is an accurate and faithful view of the love of God for us. When God sent His Son to die on the cross, when Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for my sins and for yours, that meant that God was determined to be for us. And if we only trusted Jesus, He would provide forgiveness and righteousness and a welcome into His family. And Romans 8 says God treats us as His own adopted children. And we can speak to Him with the confidence of little children addressing their loving, faithful, merciful, good Heavenly Father. And I know so many of you are 
separated from your father or alienated from your father or maybe you never knew him or maybe your dad was cruel and abusive. Listen, this is the father you always dreamed of. This is the father you could not imagine exists because he's so good and so loving. And these little children, their lives have been transformed in a way that they will actually never be able to understand. When I see the progress of these three little adopted children in our church that I'm telling you about, and I remember the transformation from the Sunday we prayed over them and dedicated them to the vibrancy and the health and the intelligence and the love in a moment because of the choice and the sacrifice of a family, those three were brought into a family that loves them, that will care for them, that is educating them, that immediately gave them relationships with a mom and a dad and with older siblings, and they will never truly fully understand how rich, how much better, how much more precious and comfortable and peaceful and joyous their lives will be, and so it is with us. Those of you who ran away from God for a long time and fought against God and sinned greatly against God perhaps can tell a story better than some of us of how much your life has changed because God did not spare His own Son. And Paul's point is, if God will do that, how could you ever imagine that He will not provide for you everything else that you need? In these days of uncertainty and fear, have confidence your Father gave the life of His own Son, certainly He will provide everything else that today makes you so fearful. And Paul goes on. It actually gets much better. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, if God has chosen people and saved people in this way, who can accuse them? If God is doing all this, who could condemn, who could accuse those who God has chosen to love and save in this way? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What this tells you is the most astonishing thing to me personally about the gospel. Verse 33 says, because God has done this, there is no one left to charge you or to condemn you. And the facts of you walking free, of you being innocent are these. Christ is the one who died for you. Not only that, He was raised from the dead to prove that it was all true, to give you His own eternal life, and amazingly, and I'll tell you more about that on Easter Sunday, Jesus is presently at the right hand of God right now at this moment interceding for you. What does all of that mean? That means that the good news of the gospel is this, that when it says that it is God who justifies, what that means is, here is our second guarantee, God declares us as righteous as Jesus is. Look again carefully, if you have your Bible open, at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's a judicial term. For those of you in the virtual crowd who are lawyers, or maybe you're like me and you're just a fan of legal proceedings. That's a legal term that Paul brought out 
of the judicial system of his own world. It means that when Jesus dies for sins, you put your trust in him, you put yourself in Christ Jesus in response to God's electing, saving, forgiving action on your behalf, God declares something to be true. And that's the way the legal system works. When a properly appointed judge says that something is true, that's it. It becomes in that moment an actual reality. And the word here is one of the most important words in the Bible. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And what that means is it is God who declares us righteous. When I was a child, I heard someone say that this word justifies. They gave me a simple way to remember it. They said, when God justifies you, it means this. It says, you can remember this, Bruce, it's justice, just as if I never sinned. And that stuck with me. But then I kept reading and I kept studying and I discovered that that was really only half the story. It's so much better than that. See, God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, can do something that no human court can do. If, you're, if you face criminal charges in the United States, they're going to give, eventually, someone is going to give a verdict of either guilty or not guilty. And if I remember, if I remember the legal terminology, remember I'm just a fan, not a lawyer, but I've heard, I think, this phrase, in the above entitled matter. In other words, in this very specific thing that this individual is accused of, he's been accused of bank robbery, and regarding the bank robbery that happened in Huntington Beach, California, on this particular day, on this particular time, we find him, and then they'll make those fa that faithful declaration, he's either guilty or not guilty. But no jury in the world, no judge in the world can say, not only are you not guilty, you're also righteous. Sir, not only did you not do it, you're the best person any of us have ever met. No, human courts have to decide on something very narrow, on a specific accusation leveled against a single individual. God does much more when He places us in His family through the death of Jesus, he does much more than simply say, it's as if you'd never sinned. No, he justifies us. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus. In other words, as the judge of all the world who will never do anything wrong, who will always bring the guilty to justice, but in his love and in his faithfulness through the penalty laid on his own undeserving son, he can bring the guilty into his family. He not only treats you as if you'd done nothing wrong, he treats you as if you'd done everything right because you're in Christ. It's not about you anymore. What is judged and evaluated in the sight of God is not your behavior, your past, your present, your future. It is the eternal, blameless, spotless, beautiful life of Jesus. And you're given by judicial declaration with the authority of God, you're given not only the remission of sins. In other words, not only are your sins covered, it's much better than that. You are credited with the full, positive, beautiful righteousness of Jesus. Think of it this way. 
if somehow Bill Gates, one of the wealthiest people in the world, came to love you and gave you a debit card with access to his personal checking account so that it took you right into his wealth, and all that belongs to Bill Gates now actually belongs to you because you've got a debit card. Would you ever, in that circumstance, would you ever worry again about sliding a debit card and seeing if it cleared? Anybody ever been there? You ever swipe the debit credit card and kind of cross your fingers and hope? We've probably all been there from time to time or pulled out a different card or a credit card. If you had Bill Gates' credit card and it was actually connected to Mr. Gates' wealth, you could swipe that with impunity anywhere and everywhere. You would never have to wonder and worry whether that debit is going to clear the account. There is an unimaginable wealth behind it, so you can purchase with confidence. So it is with the righteousness of Jesus. You've been credited at the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus with the full righteousness of Christ. You have been declared as righteous as Jesus himself is. I'm telling you, it sounds too good to be true because God is more generous, more faithful, more loving than any of us have ever dared believe. The rest of it really is just a long exposition of how loved we are and how sure all of this is. Verse 35 to the end. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, if we have been loved by God and by Jesus in this way, if the Father and Son have done this for us, who could ever separate us from a love like that? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Run your eyes over those menacing words again. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, in other words, being so poor that you no longer have clothing, or danger, or sword, meaning violence. Those are the very sorts of things that some of us are fearing. Some have feared that this tribulation will go on forever. All of us are feeling distress. Some are under pressure and wonder whether they will have enough to feed and clothe themselves if this goes on for much longer. And Paul, in the context of the first century to Christians who are being persecuted, says, are any of these earthly dangers able to separate you from God and His love? As it is written, Paul looks back into the Hebrew Bible to remind them and remind himself that this sort of suffering endured by Christians was foreseen. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And on the way here this morning, I heard a story of Christians in Mexico where I grew up, believers who in the middle of this crisis have had their water cut off. So we're told to stay home and wash our hands. They can stay home, but they can't wash their hands. Their water has been cut off deliberately as a response to their faith. These things happen in the world, 
The, Paul, the people who read Paul's letter would eventually, some of them, endure these things, tribulation and distress and persecution. Some of them went hungry. Some of them were homeless. Many of them faced danger. Some of them faced violence. Their experiences were like sheep out here. But, Paul says, no, in all these things, in other words, no matter what happens to us in the world, no matter what we go through, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And that phrase, more than conquerors, is a really interesting Greek word. It means, well, literally, it would be to hyper-conquer, to over-conquer. It's not a struggle that went to one side so that one side was the victor. It's an overwhelming victory. Imagine a tidal wave hitting a children's sandcastle, something like that. In all of those things, in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, or sword, even if we're killed in all of these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I am sure, Paul says, the reason we win, Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life in other words, not even the end of your life or anything you could do in your life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, anything in everything that God made, nothing in it, Paul says, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that tell you? this final guarantee, that because of the love of God in Christ, not only will you be provided for, not only have you already been declared as righteous as Jesus is, but the good news of the gospel means finally this, that God will turn our suffering into victory in the end, that the things you endure as a Christian in this world will someday turn to victory, someday turn to reward. Because let's be honest and let's be practical. As I've already told you, many Christians throughout history have suffered the dangers, these awful realities that Paul mentions from verse 35 and verse 36. You see, a false view of the good news of Jesus is if you have Jesus, life will always be awesome. That's health and wealth. That's prosperity preaching. It's simply not true. It wasn't true for the first Christians. It hasn't been true for most of Christians in human history. The reality for many of the people who have trusted Christ across these 2,000 years is that precisely because they have taken on the name of Jesus and declared themselves to be believers, they have suffered tribulation and distress and persecution, sometimes famine, sometimes nakedness, sometimes violence. And Paul says, in all of those things, whatever happens to us, whatever is done to us, we win. In other words, not only do we win, we're more than conquerors. There aren't words big enough to describe how big that victory will be. And I was talking to someone about this, and he said, he was a skeptic. And the objection, I, if I remember correctly, was something, oh, you, you guys, the Bible have an answer for everything. Whatever you're telling me is, whatever happens, you win. Yes, precisely. 
not because of ourselves, but because of what Jesus did. Think of what they did to Christ. He was physically disfigured. He was betrayed. The people he had given his life to for three years ran in terror. Among the very few who were at the foot of his cross stood his suffering mother. Everything that could be taken from Christ was taken from him, and he was given death. But Paul says, death in our place. Death so that we could not only be forgiven, so that we could be counted, declared by God as righteous as he is, which is the only reason we have confidence. We don't win because we're good enough. We win because Jesus is good enough, because Jesus already won and the outcome was never in doubt and the bloody cross followed by an empty tomb announces that Jesus wins. And what that means for you, Christian or skeptic, is that trusting Jesus as Savior means that nothing will change God's love for you. That's your greatest need, is to trust Jesus as your Savior. Perhaps for the first time, maybe you're one of these, and maybe you're listening in by a personal invitation. Here's as simply as I can make it. Take this crisis-laden, take this terrible moment where we've all been shaken, we've all been made afraid to realize how fragile this life is, how quickly life on this earth could end to understand and believe and trust that Jesus did all this for your sake because he loved you first. The Bible says we don't, we don't love God because of our initiative. We love him because he first loved us. And trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior means that nothing that could ever happen to you no suffering today or any suffering in the future can ever and will ever change God's amazing love for you. So I close with an appeal. If you already know this Savior, remember, dear Christian brother and sister, remember how much you already have. Remember that your Father has said that just as He saved you at His expense, He will provide for you at His expense. He will account to you the righteousness of Jesus forever, and that's why you will enjoy him someday, and that whatever suffering, great or small, you suffer on this earth, one day all of that will be turned into victory, and you'll be rewarded. Trusting Jesus as your Savior means that nothing can ever change, shake, diminish, weaken cast a shadow, it will do nothing for the love of God for you because we know that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you don't know Jesus, turn to him this morning. If you already do, turn to him in trust and say, Jesus, help my frightened heart. You love me enough to go to the cross. You love me enough to keep your promise and take your life back so that I could have eternal life with you. Help me through these fearsome, fearful days continue to trust you, knowing that nothing 
can ever separate me from your great love. Let's pray. I'm reaching out to you as best I can this strange new digital format. Listen, if you haven't trusted Christ as Savior, would you please do so right now? He's listening. He knows. He knows your guilt. He knows your fears. He knows your shame. He took all of that to the cross. It was for those things, those things that keep you up at night, those things you try so hard not to think about anymore, those things you're trying to drown and to distract yourself from. Those are the things that Jesus took to the cross with him so that instead you could have his righteousness. So call out to him, please, and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. If you bring charges against me, guilty is charged. Forgive me. I'm turning away from myself and my own ways, and I'm entrusting my life to you. Please save me. Make these things that I've heard in your word. However, the, what a faith I have, as little or as much as I understand them, I believe you. I trust you. Please save me. Help me live for you from now on and care for me as my heavenly Father. Jesus, welcome me into your family, the family of God, that I may have your righteousness and your provision. If you do that this morning, please let us know. Use the chat, use the email. There's a lot of ways to contact us on that church website. And Christians, wherever you are, let's pray together now and praise the Lord that we are loved this way. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us this way. Thank you that we have the promise of your provision. We already have your righteousness. And the suffering and the tears that we bear on this earth will somehow, someday, be turned to overwhelming victory. Not because we're good, but because you are. So as we walk through this week, we thank you for your death and your resurrection, which means that we are loved and nothing can ever change that. In Christ's name, amen.